Romans 1, and you'll see verse 16 and 17 here really kind of just a a, a summary, but yet pregnant with meaning the words and the phrases that are here. So we just want to give our attention to these two verses, particularly this morning as we continue in our study in the book of Romans. And if you're turned to Romans 1, would you stand with me out of respect for the word of God? As we look at our portion of scripture, Romans 1, beginning in verse 16, Paul declares, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And Father, we ask this morning humbly and by faith, believing that you want to speak to us as a living God who loves us and who has spoken to us through your word. We ask that every thought and intent that your spirit had in mind as you inspired these scriptures would speak into our hearts. Lord, the truth, may it be profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that as men and women of God we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Prepare us, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church this morning through this portion of your word. Bless your word as it goes forth and that way only you can and speak to us by your spirit's ministry we ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Would you agree it seems that there is never a day that goes by when there is a lack of bad news? I mean, as we look at the media and check on the internet, maybe when we get up morning by morning or see what's on the news at night or read the newspaper, I mean, whether it's the spreading outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus right now or war and conflict happening in the Middle East or uh, this ISIS group barbarically murdering and beheading not only adults but young children or the myriad of problems that exist in our own world here and and, and locally in our own country with its instability and all the problematic things in the government and economy and the morality of humanity, or perhaps maybe even just the current bad news in your own personal life that you've been faced with and that you're dealing with right now this morning, the bad news, the thing that you didn't plan for, some difficulty in your life or family, You know, it makes me really thankful that God has provided some really good news. Some really good news, quite honestly, that truly outweighs and overshadows all the bad news that exists all over this planet, or even the bad news maybe that you're dealing with in your own personal life. And that good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of God's salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, and what it offers. And that is what our text this morning is about. In fact, many have said before, verse 16 and 17 of the book of Romans, it's it's almost this thesis statement for the letter of Romans, which is a letter that deals a lot with and greatly about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You remember the background in our study from last week 
is Paul at this point has just expressed his strong desire and his intention to want to visit Rome. He's never been there before and to be able to serve and to minister among them. The last thing he had just declared in our prior verses in verse 14 and 15 was how he sensed a spiritual obligation from the Lord to go and minister among them as well as the fact that he had a great eagerness from the Lord to have an opportunity, he said, to preach the gospel there in Rome also as he had in other places. And though Paul has not physically been able to get to Rome yet, and though he has not been able to be in Rome to preach the gospel, the interesting thing is though he could not get to preach the gospel in Rome, Paul realized that he could still preach the gospel to Rome. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit directing him, Paul picks up his quill and what does he do? He pens this letter that we have called the book of Romans in which he preaches the gospel to Rome. Though he couldn't preach in Rome, he realized that the Spirit of God directed him that he still could preach the gospel to Rome. And really, that is what the book of Romans is quite a bit about. The book of Romans is sort of an expanded and in-depth discussion of the gospel message, describing the good news of Jesus' salvation that's available to sinful people in humanity. And I think the fact that Paul could not preach in Rome, but he still found a way to preach to Rome is really an insightful lesson because it reminds me that God is the master He's the master of wisdom and creativity when it comes to reaching people. God will find a way to reach people. I mean, in this room this morning, the stories that no doubt exist of the creative way that God found to reach you in your life exactly the way that you needed to be reached to get your attention, to help you understand. And let me just say this. I don't think anything can replace just... You know, uh, you know, the personal spoken word of one person communicating to another individual. And I don't think, quite honestly, anything would ever trump God's foremost priority or protocol of just the spoken word of in a relational, personal way, one person speaking to another person, communicating the gospel message of salvation. However, that being said, we have to realize that God does have additional ways to reach people beyond our maybe local sphere of influence that we have contact with to minister to other people still. And I say that to say this, let's not limit our sphere of influence and what our sphere of influence can be personally or congregationally, but be wise and realize that we should utilize every passageway possible that God would give to us to be able to proclaim and to distribute the gospel message of his salvation to all the world as much as possible. I mean, just think of what things we have seen happen already in our generation. The incredible fruitful use of things like radio where somebody beyond the local congregation they're pastoring you know, is able, as a door opens, to be able to put the gospel and the word of God on radio airwaves or through t and, and reach other communities or reach others in their community that maybe don't attend their local fellowship. Think of how written, produced literature uh, that has been printed, printed material, distribution of Bibles and tracts and Christian literature... 
where the word of God in written form and the gospel in written form produced and printed and then distributed has proclaimed the gospel to thousands and thousands of people. How about sending emails or texts? We use that for a lot of really stupid other things. Why not put the word of God in a text and send it to someone? I love to be able to utilize the capacity to text my wife, children, some of you at times to just give the word of God to someone and to distribute the word of God in a way that may be in a simple written form. How about forms of media? I mean, social networking. Think of the foolish, filthy, ridiculous things that social media and social networking is used for. That is the language of our current generation and not just the youth culture. Why not redeem it in ways that we can to be able to distribute the gospel message through wisdom? Again, should anything ever, I think, trump preaching the gospel, speaking relationally into someone's ear, heart to heart, face to face? No, that's not what I'm saying. But let's realize that God's creative. And that's not limit the opportunity whenever we would have to distribute the gospel message. Jesus said in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The key is embracing our commission from Jesus and making continual efforts to release the gospel in any way that we can. And that's what Paul's declaring in our statements at this point in Romans about wanting to preach the gospel. How he said in verse 15, I'm ready, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. I can't be there, but he says, I know a way I can still get the gospel to you. And we see as he writes this letter, he clearly gives the gospel to Rome. And I think here he's giving us some important reasons why we have to make continual efforts to release the gospel message. Look with me again back in verse 16 in our text. Paul begins by saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So the Bible indicates the first thing really by way of importance in communicating the gospel, whether talking in a one-on-one conversation with another person or whether standing before a group of six people on a boardwalk or having the opportunity to teach a Bible study or speak to a crowd, one of the most important things up front in communicating the gospel message is simply to just not be embarrassed, to not be intimidated because of what effect it may have on the person listening or what their response may be or may not be. You know, interesting, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That's the fourth time now, if you haven't noticed, in the first half of this chapter already that we keep seeing this familiar word, gospel. We've seen in chapter one already the gospel of God. Paul's talked about the gospel of his son. Now here he talks about the gospel of Christ. And we've said already the word gospel just means good news. It's good news. It's a term that indicates the announcement or message of good news. It is the good news, very simply, that though we are all sinful, that we all fail and make mistakes, and that that guilt of my sin and your sin and our personal failures, that that guilt of offending God deserves punishment. It deserves damnation in hell. But yet God loves us. Despite our failings and sins and offenses against him, that God loves you, he loves me, and he has sent his son Jesus Christ 
to live sinlessly and die substitutionally in our place on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve. That he would be punished on our behalf and now Jesus, having risen from the dead, can graciously offer us the free gift of the forgiveness of all of our sin, no matter what we've done. He can offer us the assurance of access into eternal life after we die. And he can give to us a personal relationship with God. Not religion. Not a religious lifestyle. But a relationship with God through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And this is all available to be received by just placing our faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Whereas Jesus declared it familiarly in John 3, 16 and 17. Jesus declared, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And he said, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7 that Jesus can save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him. This gospel message is very simply a settled group of facts that communicates the message of Jesus' salvation for humanity. And this message is something, notice, that Paul says here in verse 16 is not ashamed of. He declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, of the gospel, the good news of of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done and made available. And you should circle that word ashamed there in verse 16, or if not, do it in your person's Bible next to you. If they won't do it, help them out. Circle that word ashamed. That word ashamed basically indicates feeling embarrassed. Feeling embarrassed and therefore being somewhat reluctant or hesitant about something. That's the idea there. Being ashamed or embarrassed and therefore feeling reluctant or hesitant about something. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not going to allow myself to be ashamed. Potentially, sometimes he struggled with being ashamed. But Paul says, I've realized that I cannot be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, question this morning, why would Paul say that? Well, particularly in his day, especially among the culture of Rome, we need to realize ancient Rome... That culture esteemed power. They esteemed power. If you know anything about the Roman military, they conquered by an iron fist. Rome had probably the most powerful military force, quite honestly, potentially in all of the history of humanity. Rome esteemed power and powerful people. Powerful people were the ones that were looked up to. Those who were strong and could conquer others were those who were deemed important and esteemed. And to possess power and authority to rule over other people and to dominate people, that was what made you important in the Roman culture. Now, consider the measures of Christianity. Consider what Christianity communicated in that Roman culture. Christianity and the gospel centered on a king and a leader who was a humble Jewish man from a poor and simple family. It centered the message upon this humble Jewish man who went around and meekly served other people and washed their feet and did lowly duties of service. It was a message whereby their king rode into Jerusalem not in a triumph with a parade and a big white horse, but on a lowly, humble donkey. 
I mean, that would be like instead of riding in with a procession like the president does, you know, coming into Jerusalem on a little moped. You know, that's the idea there. This is the message of, of Christianity that, that was being communicated. And this king, this leader of Christianity, he was arrested and crucified like a common criminal. And most of his followers were not prominent, important people because they were too important to need help in their lives. They were righteous enough. They didn't need a crutch like following some savior. Most of his followers were down and out. They were the poor and common people among society who had the humility like a child to realize my life's a mess and I need help. But you have to understand in the Roman mind as they looked at this message of Christianity, it really wasn't too impressive from their logical standpoint. In fact, it was quite a mockery in many ways. So you can see how there would be a temptation to be ashamed and embarrassed to share that gospel message among the Roman Empire. And as I look at that, I'm thankful to see, yet Paul says, look, but I'm not ashamed of it. And, and I will not be intimidated to share it. Why? Because Paul understood the full story. And what was the full story? That the God of creation, an all-powerful God, who was the one that was sinned and offended against, could have exerted his power and authority and destroyed every person on the planet. But instead, he withheld his power and authority and he lovingly came and dwelt among man in total humility, serving people like a, 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 a caring, humble king and lowered himself to reach people and, and live that sinless life that we couldn't and then died substitutionally and demonstrated his power by raising over the death process and coming back to life so that now Jesus, as a living Savior, has power to bring salvation, as Paul says here in this verse. He has the power and authority to save people from their condition and rescue them. And I tell you, as I look at this, if we're honest with ourselves by way of application, does it not seem that it is a challenge for all of us at times to be ashamed of the gospel? For different reasons and for different purposes, but it seems it's a challenge for all of us at times to become ashamed, embarrassed in some way of the gospel. Maybe you're a young person and that strong peer pressure of accept, I want acceptance and I want to seem cool, I don't want to seem weird or different. And, and so because of that, you're ashamed to really live for Jesus Christ and to let your friends honestly know, yeah, I am a Christian and I love Jesus and I follow Jesus. And, and, and to take the opportunity in a conversation instead of talking about who's twittering or twitting or whatever they're doing to, to say, can I, what do you believe spiritually? Where do you stand with God? And to engage in a conversation that could actually have eternal impact or maybe rescue another kid from becoming the next heroin addict or the next suicide victim or the next sexually promiscuous young person that ruins their lives and has tons of regrets because they live never knowing Jesus because as a young person you were too ashamed of who Jesus is or who you follow to admit you're a Christian and to acknowledge and engage that even openly beyond just trying to believe in your heart but hold it back from everybody. Or maybe you're an adult and you say, yeah, kids struggle with that. Sure. Many times we're ashamed as adults. Many times we're more ashamed than adults 
of what our image may be or our coworker may think or our family member may think because we truly live for Jesus or want to proclaim the gospel to an unsaved loved one maybe who's you know, not too thrilled about it or maybe is a very religious person in our family. And God forbid we tell them, look, your religion won't save you. Your church attendance won't save you. Jesus can save you. And, and, and sometimes we can be ashamed of the gospel with some of the most moral and religious people because God forbid we upset them to tell them that yes, you are devoted to your religion, but you don't know Jesus. And your church didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. But many times we're, we're, we struggle. I'm preaching to myself. Why do you think I can give such good illustrations? It's difficult. And we can struggle. And I think like Paul, we must come to the place where we're not ashamed of the gospel. And in order to do this, I think we need to possess some of what Paul possessed, some things that are helpful, things like maybe a greater burden for lost souls and understanding people's condition. Lord, would you give me a greater burden? It seemed like a burden that Paul had. Would you give me a greater burden for lost souls to really think that people are eternal beings? Lord, give me a burden for souls. Lord, I pray that you would help me have a clear understanding of what the gospel is and what it can do in a life when it's released into their ears and into their heart to hear it. Lord, would you baptize me afresh with your Holy Spirit that I would have a, a spiritual courage, that I would be emboldened to talk about Jesus and the claims of the gospel and eternal life, a supernatural courage to speak about that as comfortably and freely as I would talking about everything else that we talk about in everyday conversation. Again, I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm just talking about not being intimidated. Then the same way we talk about the sports or anything else, just social chatter, that, that we would feel just as comfortable because of supernatural boldness to just speak openly about Jesus and who he is and what he wants for our lives and God's plan for us. Paul's going to tell us here why in these verses we must not be ashamed to share this message. He says, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he says, let me tell you why. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Paul says, embedded in this very message, look what he says there, is the supernatural power of God to bring salvation. It's embedded right in the gospel message to bring salvation. Now, when we hear that word salvation, important we understand the word salvation implies, hear me, being saved from something. It's a word with its implication that means experiencing deliverance, being rescued from impending danger, from impending doom. It's a word that speaks of being rescued from a trap or a prison. If I can, again, illustrate in your mind, it's like the person tied down, like in the old movies, to the railroad tracks, and the train is barreling down on them. They need salvation. It's like the person who's fallen, whether they wanted to or not, off of a cliff, and they're hanging there by their foot upside down. It's, it's like the person who's lost in a jungle and they have no idea how to find their way out. It's like the person who's trapped in the strongest and most secure prison cell that they could never escape from. All those are pictures of a person needing salvation. They're pictures of a person, listen, who try as they may, they cannot deliver themselves. They can't rescue themselves. They can't fix their situation. They need to be saved, rescued, by a Savior coming to help them and saving them 
from what they can't save themselves from. That word salvation, when we see it in our Bible, implies every person's natural condition and their need spiritually. That's what it reminds us of. We need to experience salvation from sin, from Satan, from hell, all of which control our lives until we're delivered by Jesus Christ. It is vitally important that people come to understand that they need to be saved. You got to understand the bad news for what Jesus is offering to really seem like good news. That's what makes it such good news. Because you understand the reality of the need in your life that we can't save ourselves. We need to have a savior. The Bible teaches clearly that we are all born sinful by nature. David says, surely in sin, my mother conceived me. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and thus death and sin have spread to all men. We are born sinful by nature. If you've raised children, I don't know how you could not recognize that. I never had to teach my children how to do anything wrong. You say, yes, they have good genes, Tony. They are yours. You spend your whole life trying to teach them not to do what's wrong. From the moment they can't even talk, that they're just selfishly, if, if you could hear what they're saying in that crib or when they're having a temper tantrum, when they're six months, they're like, I'll kill you if you don't give me something to eat or change my diaper. You know. I mean, what? They want to rule the world, right? Because they're little sinful rebels. That's our natural inclination, not to do what's right. Our natural inclination is to do what's wrong. We have to teach kids to do what's right. They know how to do what's wrong. We all know how to think wrong thoughts, to say wrong things, to react wrongly in anger, frustration, selfishness. Our inclination is that we are bent towards being rebellious and doing what's wrong because the Bible says that's how we were born. It came from Adam. When the atom bomb went off, the effects have happened to every person in creation. We are born with a sinful tendency. And because of that, guess what we do? Guess what sinners do? They sin. That's why we all commit sin. We do things that are wrong in thought and word and deed. And when we sin, whether we wanted to sin or not, we become guilty before a holy God who's a righteous judge. The Bible says, clearly there's none righteous, no, not one. Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 3, there's no difference for we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It literally means to miss the mark. You can have a bullseye in the back of the room and if I was the greatest marksman on this planet, I may hit that bullseye 74 times, but eventually, guess what? Eventually, I'll miss the mark, which means this. Please hear me this morning. You can be a sinner if you don't want to. You are a sinner even if you don't want to. Because you can try your best to live perfectly, but it's impossible. You have failed. You will fail. Thought, word, and deed. We sin. We offend a holy God. And God's standard in heaven is holy perfection. And no person can attain to that. We all may all sin on different levels. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. Or I'm, I'm not these ISIS people beheading children. Listen, the bottom line is the standard is so high, it says we all miss the mark. We all fall short. Some may fall short, but we all fall short. And if you fall short, you fall short. You don't make the standard. No one makes the cut. We are all, Romans 3 says, all the world is guilty before God. And as a result, our debt of sin makes us righteously and justly deserve punishment for our sin. 
We righteously deserve the punishment of God's holy wrath. The Bible says that we are by nature children of wrath and that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Please hear me. As sinners, we all deserve and will be cast into hell and eternal torment and damnation if we die in that condition. If we are not rescued by Jesus from the wrath of God that we personally deserve. Not to mention that once we sin, we then become enslaved to sin and sin's power. Jesus said, anyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. I'm not a, I'm not a slave of sin. I'm not a slave of sin. Jesus says you are. Jesus says it rules our lives. Ephesians 2 says that we all once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, fulfilling the lusts of our flesh and the desires of our mind. Listen, you may not recognize it. You may not see the shackles outwardly. But the Bible says that we must be set free. And Jesus said, if the son sets you free, then you shall be free indeed. But our condition prior to that is that we need to be saved, delivered, and rescued from that condition. And we can't rescue ourselves. We have to be rescued by a Savior. Listen, you say, well, I thought you said this message was about good news. <laughs> it was about good news, wasn't it? Well, listen, it is critical that we first realize our true condition. Every one of us. I don't care whether you're 70, I don't care whether you're 17, I don't care whether you've been raised in a Christian home and you feel, I'm pretty moral. I mean, compared to all these, I'm pretty moral. But listen, the Bible says, but you still are a sinner. You still fail. The Bible communicates that we are all guilty sinners before a holy God destined for eternal torment and hell. And that every one of us are a slave to sin's power and Satan's rulership over our life until we are rescued. And that's why we need a Savior. And that's why God in his love, instead of abandoning us, sent us a Savior. 1 John 4 says that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Please, please understand, someone had to receive punishment for sin. Sin has to be punished. The glorious thing is it doesn't have to be you. Jesus took the punishment. All the wrath of God of the sin of humanity was fired down upon Jesus Christ as God poured out his wrath on Jesus and Jesus was beaten and scourged and crucified and bled out his life in death to take the punishment for sin that you deserve. He stepped into our place. And someone had to be punished so that man could be forgiven, forgiveness could be available, and access into heaven was made. And in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has done everything perfectly to satisfy what is necessary to be the Savior of the world. Acts 4.12 says regarding Jesus, There is no salvation in any other, for there is no under name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Underline those last three words in your mind by which we must be saved. We must be saved. That is so critical to understand that we must, on God's terms, allow and ask for Jesus to save us and Jesus will rescue and deliver and save anyone who, believing upon him, calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation. That's why Paul says here that the gospel is, verse 16, the power of God to 
salvation. Notice the power of God. That word power is our word that we get in the English dynamite or dynamic. Paul's reminding us that there is a dynamic power from God implanted in the message of the gospel. That as people hear the truths of the gospel message, it has a powerful effect inside of them. As they understand the claims of the gospel message of salvation, it brings powerful conviction, which is necessary. It brings conviction of my condition before a holy God. That I'm desperate, God. I'm destitute. God, I'm a sinner. And, and, and God, I'm facing eternal damnation. God, and, and conviction comes. Their people are cut to the heart. It's a message that brings conviction and then it brings incredible compelling because people see God's amazing love. But God, you love me? God, you actually love me though I've done what I've done. You love me? And you mean to tell me you'll forgive me of anything I've done? You'll wash me clean and take away this guilt and Jesus, you'll give me a new life? I can start over? Jesus, I can know that I'm going to go to heaven after I die, not hope I'll go to heaven after I die? And there's this conviction of sin and this compelling as the call of God comes upon a person's heart to accept and to embrace Jesus. And there's a power in the message of the gospel, a power leading to salvation. I mean, just consider that message transforms people's lives. Think of Paul. Did it not transform people's lives? Paul knew it firsthand. Who in this room that's a believer this morning would not say, you know what? I don't understand. That message changed my life. I heard that message and it changed my life. It transformed me. There's embedded a dynamic supernaturally in the life-changing power of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ when it is heard that simple news has the power to lead a person to salvation if they come to understand what it's saying and God has the power to save them through Jesus. They hear the call, yet there is a responsibility. There is a response. The power is available to be led to salvation, but there is something necessary in our response. Without such, the power of God that could bring salvation can be hindered. And this is, I think, what Paul is conveying. The gospel message powerfully stirs a heart and the power is there to save as Jesus Christ can bring that to a soul that believes upon him. Yet, only if they believe and they respond to the invitation. You see what our text says, verse 16? It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Belief and faith in the claims of the gospel exercised in a personal response is what allows a person to experience the power of God for salvation in their life. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 2 says this. Listen to what he declares. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. We heard the same message. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Do you hear what that says? Paul, he says, we both heard the same message, but it didn't profit them in the way that it profited us. One reason, because they didn't mix in the ingredient of personal faith in response to it. 
Listen, I am not spiritual enough to fully grasp and understand how all that works out in God's supernatural plan, but I understand this, that the power of God to bring salvation is available to everyone, but it is somehow activated by personal belief for yourself in responding to it and saying, yes, I believe that I'm a sinner. Yes, I believe that I deserve to go to hell, but yes, I believe for me that Jesus died on that cross. And I believe he wrote, and I believe that Jesus can save me and he wants to save me. And somehow when you believe it for yourself, it has a powerful, eternal, life-changing impact. And that word believe that we see in our text there does not, it's not a term that indicates intellectual assent to facts. It is a word believe that's used there that speaks of a complete confidence and trust in something whereby you would put your life upon it and base your life upon it. That's the idea. It's not just intellectual. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I believe people make mistakes. I, yeah, I do. I, I believe Jesus came to this earth. It's not assenting to facts. It's a trust and a confidence where you will trust your personal life upon it. It's like looking at a rope bridge that crosses a, a big ravine between you know, two different cliffs and somebody saying, it'll hold you. Yeah, okay, I believe it'll hold me. We'll walk across it then. Walk across it. See, that's the difference. What's easy to, well, I, yeah, I, I believe it. But if you truly believe it, you will base your life upon it. You will entrust your life upon it. This is the idea. When we personally entrust our hearts and lives, then the power of God of salvation is available. Notice he says, for everyone who believes. And can I just say in connection to everyone who believes, he doesn't say everyone who behaves. You don't behave to experience salvation. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. It's important as well to experience God's salvation that you realize it's about you believing facts and the claims of the gospel message and what Jesus has done for you. It's not about you behaving to get in God's good graces. Yeah, I need to get right with God, so I'm going to start attending church. That's great. All right. That's, that's a good thing. I need to get right with God. I'm going to start reading the Bible more. I'm going to start saying some prayers. I'm, I'm going to start you know, helping little ladies across the street and doing some good deeds or maybe giving a little extra money to, the, you know, to, to ALS, even if I don't get the ice challenge. <laughs> Wonderful things. But if you could behave, then why would God, as a perfect loving father, let his son be beaten and spit on and scourged and nailed to a cross and die publicly humiliated. Listen, I would not do that for any person with my kids. And I'm a weak, evil human father, but God is a perfect father. Let all that happen to Jesus because it was essential. And you and I could never behave well enough. It would never reach the standard. It's not about behaving. It's about believing. You can't earn salvation. You can't acquire salvation. You, it can't be attained. It's not for those who behave. It's for those who believe. Those who believe. Behavior comes as a response in gratitude. Salvation is universally needed and equally available. It's for everyone who believes, Paul says. To the Jew first and also, he says, for the Greek. Now that latter phrase, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, has nothing to do with worth. It just has to do with timing that the message of the gospel went first to the Jew and then it also was brought to the Gentile people as well. 
Again, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah and the Jews are God's chosen people. So in order, God brought the gospel to the Jews first, but ultimately it was a message intended for all the Gentile world. The Bible's saying everyone needs salvation. It's equally available to all, no matter what you've done. And everyone receives that power of God's salvation the same way, as I said, by faith. Why did God choose faith? Because it's the one thing that every one of us can do. If it's by works, well, what if you become a quadriplegic and you can't attend church? What if you're struggling to pay your bills and you can't give money to a church? Everyone can believe. Not everybody can behave the same, but everyone can exercise their heart and believe. Somebody on their deathbed, a thief on the cross, could turn to Jesus with his dying breath and say, Lord, I believe. Today, remember me when I come into your kingdom. God's made it equally available so a child can believe the same way an adult can. A rich person and a poor person can believe as well. It doesn't matter one's skin color, one's social status. It doesn't matter if you've been a pretty good person or you have been the worst reprobate, filthy person on this planet. You can both believe. You can equally receive the power of God's salvation. And regarding that message of salvation, Paul says, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now certainly the righteousness of God describes one of God's attributes, that God is a righteous God. And Romans 1 to 3 will show how God is righteous and how he offers salvation. But this is speaking of how in the gospel it's revealed that God's righteousness is given to us as a gift. His righteousness is given to us as a gift as a result of our putting our faith in Jesus Christ. The need for and the receiving of the righteousness of God into our lives that's supplied to make sinful people acceptable to a holy and a righteous God. Notice it's called the righteousness of God. It's not a righteousness that comes through my efforts or spiritual or religious attainments or achievements. It's a righteousness that God supplies from who he is. It's his righteousness given to us. Important to learn and realize, except as a fact, we need the righteousness of God. We all need that as a part of salvation. Contrary to what many wrongly believe, and sadly some religious circles seem to imply or teach, we cannot establish our own righteousness. Doing enough of these or praying enough of these prayers, you can't establish your own righteousness. Our righteousness is not acceptable. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags to God when it's at its best effort. We cannot establish a righteousness. Well, I'm pretty good. Well, what's good enough? Nobody can be good enough. It's not sufficient. Romans 10 warns of those who seek to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted to the righteousness of God. See, God can't, God won't accept your righteousness. He won't accept our righteousness. He must give us his righteousness because that's the standard to be in heaven with a holy and a pure and a righteous God. This is what the gospel teaches. Salvation is about God's righteousness being supplied as a gift deposited into your spiritual bank account. We'll talk about this in the chapters ahead. That at the moment we accepted Jesus Christ by faith, a judicial act happened where God took away your sin. 
But he didn't just take away your sin. He then deposited into your bank account spiritually the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. So when God looks upon you and looks upon me, he does not see us in our sin. He sees us robed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And he relates to us in that way. And this is necessary, hear me, to be right with God. A person cannot be right with God until they receive the righteousness of God by putting their faith in Jesus Christ and then that is given as a gift from God as a part of accepting Jesus as Savior. And Paul says, we may still stumble practically, we may still not perform the way we want to, but positionally, positionally, you will be right with God because you'll receive the righteousness of God that is given in the experience of salvation from Jesus Christ. And he says that righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. One translation says there from start to finish by faith. In other words, we began our relationship with God, how? By faith alone. That's how we were born again. When you accepted Jesus today, if you accept Jesus, you begin by faith. That's how you start, by faith, receiving it by faith. How do you retain your relationship you keep living by faith and walking with Jesus. And when you're breathing your dying breath, from faith to the end of your faith, you die in faith believing the claims of that gospel message are true and that the moment I close my eyes to be absent from this body, I'm going to be present with the Lord. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And I put full confidence and trust in that. So from faith to deeper faith, we come into a greater understanding of the greatness of God's salvation plan as we walk with him. That's why Paul quotes at the end of verse 17 from Habakkuk 2.4. He says, therefore, the just shall live by faith. The word just means those who are right with God. So what's Paul saying? Those who are right with God live by faith. As a Christian, we have to continue to live by faith in what Jesus has accomplished. We have to realize it's not all about me and my performance even after I'm saved. It's not about how well I did do or didn't do or gaining or keeping God's approval. It's always about what Jesus did and continuing to believe upon that and trust upon that and rely upon that and to know that that is the only reason. I may fail, I may stumble and when we do, what happens? You fail, you stumble, you feel the guilt. You have the regrets. The condemnation, the feelings come in. Perhaps recently you've made some mistakes. And you're dealing with the guilt and the regret and the condemnation. Listen, the Bible says the just, those who are right with God, they don't live by feelings. They live by faith. By a faith that says, God, I realize that I don't always measure up still. And perhaps your spiritual feelings have been telling you a different message recently. But the way to remain in right relationship with God is to live by faith. Lord, I don't understand why you love me. Lord, I don't understand why you keep forgiving me. But Lord, I believe it. I'll believe it. Lord, I believe that you still love me and I will live by faith and rejoice because of that. And listen, today, you may not understand all that you're even currently going through in your life. You're dealing with different things, hardships, challenges that make you question things and you may not understand it all. Listen, that's okay. That's okay. The way to just stay right with God is just keep living by faith. Don't measure God's love and by every... You just keep living by faith. You know, as we look at these things this morning, let us, especially as Christians, let us not be ashamed of Jesus 
and his message of salvation and the good news that that is for every soul on this planet that no matter how hard or difficult or what happens that you know what I can be right with God I can know that one day I'm going to get out of this world and there's a glory that awaits me and there is hope beyond the grave and there's something beyond this world and that I can hold on to that and that we wouldn't be ashamed of that and that message Jesus said this whoever desires to come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father Therefore, Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Those are strong words. What did Jesus mean? I think he meant what he said about not being ashamed, about confessing him before men and not being ashamed to do that. You know, if we were honest with ourselves, a lot of times things that happen and don't happen in our lives spiritually are, quite frankly, just because we're ashamed. You know, every year, churches like ours do water baptisms. And I promise you, every year at churches when they have water baptisms, there are people who don't get baptized because they're ashamed. There are people who know Jesus, as we talked about earlier, who live out their Christian life and they believe, but, but they want to be an undercover disciple. So they don't live openly about their Christian faith because they're ashamed. There are husbands who are in families that, in a sense, are not living the way God's called them to live because they're ashamed. It might be perceived as somehow weak or, or not so cool to actually be as passionate and loving about Jesus. It, it seems to confront their, their manhood. There are lots of things that affect and deter spiritual life and hold people back from Christ for one reason. There are some of you maybe here this morning that you know and you understand and you want to follow Jesus, but the reason that you don't is because you're ashamed. You're ashamed. Hey, can I leave you with this thought this morning to be right with God? What could be more important than that? To be just and be right with God. Maybe you say this morning, you know, I, I do want to be right with God. In fact, I want to know. I want to know I'm right with God. I want to be sure I'm right with God. Listen, let me simplify it for you. You have to be willing to come to Jesus in faith. To believe. And to receive what he is offering and to live by faith and choose to follow him. It takes faith to humbly admit that you're a sinner. It takes faith to admit that you deserve to go to hell. And you don't deserve to go to heaven. It takes faith to realize that Jesus is the only Savior and that you need to be saved. It takes faith to accept God's love when you feel like maybe you don't deserve it because of failures or mistakes. It takes faith to repent of your sin and say, okay, I will leave that. It takes faith to make a commitment to say, I will repent of that sin and turn and follow Jesus by faith as my Savior. Listen, the Bible says if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart God's raised from the dead, we shall be saved. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved.